0: And Jason and I have been talking about it for a couple of months now. So I, I hope that it is encouraging to... to be here as often as you're able and to, um, to pray that God would uh, be with us and open our eyes and uh, ears to receive his word from that wonderful book. But before we explore Acts in a couple of weeks, I want to take these first two weeks of the year uh, to remind us all myself included, of two very basic things. Uh, and if we, if we get these two things right, then almost everything else will fall into place. sort of to set the year off on the right foot. So this, this may come as a surprise to you. I, I think I, I've made a few comments during sermons, and folks that I never would have thought that. Well, uh, you may never have thought this, but I enjoy dancing. Um, now, I want to clarify... I don't enjoy like club-type dancing with hip-hop or house music. Um, I, I don't enjoy that at all. I actually hate that kind of dancing because I have no idea what I'm doing and I look like a wounded animal when I try to do that. So I don't enjoy that kind of dancing. Um, the kind of dancing that I enjoy is like ballroom dancing or, or country-type dancing. But there's a problem, and that is that Kimbo hates every kind of dancing. Uh, that's my wife. And so, we, we rarely dance, uh, but several years ago, I, I persuaded her to take a dance class with me. Uh, our former church in Alabama offered ballroom dancing classes in the evening, and so for six months, we took classes together, and we learned to waltz and to tango and to swing dance in the two-step, and I have forgotten most of it um, but there was a couple of things that I remember, and one thing in particular, and that is how important it is to start off on, on the right foot, the, the correct foot. You know, when you, when, you, when you start off on the right foot, the correct foot, dancing really can be beautiful, and it certainly can be fun. But when you start off on the wrong foot, everything can easily go sideways. It can go sideways quickly if you're a novice like like we are. You, you, you lose your timing. Um, you, you, you end up stepping on one another's feet. You end up getting frustrated and quitting. And so when you start off on the wrong foot, uh, it's both ugly and dangerous. And so here's what I would like you to think about, sort of an, as an overarching image. I want you to think about these first two weeks of 2019 as, as an attempt to start off on the right foot. An attempt to start off on the right foot, and, and to consider what I've called the gospel dance of the Christian life, and, and the dance that I particularly have in mind is the two-step. You know, two-stepping is—it's uh, pretty simple, right? Two steps in one direction, and then a small slide in the other direction. And the gospel dance is also really simple. The steps are not complex. We move into God in faith and repentance, two steps, and then he spins us out into mission. And then we repeat over and over and over again, moving around the dance floor of life. We move into God in faith and repentance, and then he spins us out into mission. And so this week, we're going to explore the first part of this dance, moving into God in faith and repentance. So, sometime last fall, I don't remember when it was. Jason, he gave away one of my secrets, <laughs> and that is that almost every year I preach on Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of the two sons. I'm not sure if you've picked up on that. It's been nearly eight years that I've been with you now, so hopefully you have picked up on that. But, um, but I try every year to preach uh, from Luke 15 because I, I believe that passage. Beautifully communicates the gospel in a, in a particular way to both wayward, rebellious sinners, as well as obedient religious sinners. Uh, Tim Keller uh, wrote a book called The Prodigal God, uh, and in the book he says that he has seen more people encouraged, enlightened, and helped by, by this passage in Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, than by any other biblical text. He says, because Jesus' purpose is, is not in this passage to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. That through this parable, Jesus challenges nearly, uh, what nearly everyone has believed about God, sin, and salvation. It's a, it's a, it's a category-shattering parable. And so, again... We're going to look this morning at Luke 15. We're going to read the first two verses just for for context, and then we'll pick up in verse 11 and read through verse uh, 32. And that's found on page 874 in the Pew Bible, and so if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can grab a Pew Bible there, or you can also follow along in the bulletin. But we're going to be reading Luke 15, 1 and 2, skip down to 11. Let's pray, and then we'll read God's Word. Heavenly Father... Uh, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word remains forever because your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Uh, The word of God, Christ, the Logos, revealed to us and his written revelation of his life and gospel ministry. We believe, Lord, that the word is alive and that the word works. And so as we read your living word this morning and as I seek to faithfully preach your word, Would you work among us and within us to unstop our ears and to open our eyes and to give us receptive hearts? That even if if we have heard and listened and read this parable countless times, that again, with fresh eyes, you would do a work, a work that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you were always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. May God write his word upon our hearts. So because I have preached this passage so many times, and many of you have heard it many times, I want to approach it with a slightly different emphasis this morning. Of course, the meaning of this passage hasn't changed. It doesn't change, but it's so rich that that we can approach it from many different angles and still get at the gospel hard. And so even even if you've heard me preach this passage now for eight years, um, hang with me, because I believe that every time we hear it, every time I hear it, God opens the eyes of our heart in a fresh way, and I believe he'll do that this morning. And so with that in mind, I have three things that I want you to consider um, from this beautiful, uh, heart-wrenching parable The first thought that I want you to consider is is, uh, this idea of don't be like your brother. Don't be like your brother. So we need to understand the setting. When, When Jesus told this parable, and that's why we read the first two verses of the chapter. When Jesus told this parable, there were two types of people gathered around him. There were tax collectors and sinners and scribes and Pharisees. And tax collectors and sinners, it's a, it's a common phrase that we see in the New Testament. It's a shorthand name for people on the outside, people on the margins, uh, people who were, who were mostly immoral and irreligious, certainly were not followers of the, the God of the Old Testament. And so in this parable, these people on the margins, these people on the outside, those who were immoral, who were irreligious, who took advantage of others, they're identified with the younger brother. There were also gathered around Jesus Pharisees and scribes, and that's a phrase you also see frequently in the New Testament. It's a it's a shorthand name for people on the inside, people who were who were very moral, who were very religious, and in the parable they're identified with with the older brother. In the little church where I grew up, the church my parents still attend, there were. There were two young men, there was a, it was a really small church, so there, wasn't a lot of, uh, there wasn't a lot of kids by age, but there were two young men, and one was a few years older than me, and one was just a year older than me, and um, the one who was a few years older than me, he became a cautionary tale uh, for parents to teach their children about the dangers of drinking and drugs and, and bad decisions. And so he was, at, I grew up with him. He was at the church every Sunday, but really only because his parents made him attend. And then when he graduated from high school, I really never saw him again. And he, he went off the deep end. He went headlong into, um, into a life of, of debauchery, like the passage says. He ended up going in and out of rehab, committing a crime, and then spending some time in prison. This is the one young man. There was another young man who was just one year older than me, and he was a model of sorts for what every parent wished their child would be. Uh, he never let his hair touch his collar. He always came in first place in our Bible drills. And he was, he was sickeningly polite. Um, but this is sort of a, a generational idea. He was the Eddie Haskell sort of polite, if you know what I mean. Well, he also... Uh, Graduated And he went off to college to Stillwater. That may say something about him, I'm not sure. Um, but but he, 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 also, he also went off the deep end, but it was, it was quite different. It looked different. He stopped trusting in the love and faithfulness of God. He began to question everything that he had grown up learning and he had believed. And and this young man was no nearer to God in his office in Stillwater than the other man was in his prison cell. And friends, what I want you to understand is that it's not just the immoral and the irreligious who are lost and need to be found, who go headlong into a life of sin. It is also the moral and devoutly religious who are lost and need to be found. And so consider the younger brother. He's the one we're first introduced to. Consider the younger brother. Uh, When you really begin to peel back the layers of this parable and consider what he did and why he did it, it seems that he was searching for love. In fact, the opening reflective quote in the the bulletin talks about this search for um, unconditional love. He was searching for love, he was searching for happiness. And he thought that he could find love and happiness apart from his father. He thought that he would find love and happiness apart from his father in a carefree, indulgent life. There was actually a reason for his rebellion. And the reason that younger brothers do what younger brothers do The reason this young man at the church that I grew up in, the reason that some of you have have children of your own who've followed this track, the reason that many of us ourselves have followed that sort of track, the reason that younger brothers do what younger brothers do is because they think it will make them happy. They they think it will provide some sort of fulfillment. They, They end up looking for love in all the wrong places. And many people choose the younger brother life, and they do their own thing. They do what feels good. They disregard the law of God. They disregard the laws of men, and they are lost. They're lost. They're unhappy, and they're unfulfilled. And that's what what the text leads us to. He thought he would find love apart from his father in the arms of prostitutes. He thought that he would find happiness and fulfillment in a, li- in a carefree life of debauchery, but he's no more loved and happy and fulfilled. He's still longing. But consider the older brother. <coughs> he too was searching for love and happiness. He thought that he could earn his father's love. The younger brother thought that he could find love apart from his father. The older brother thought that he could find love from his father if he earned it, that he could find happiness in a, in a moral, compliant, obedient life. But it's, it's very clear from the text that he does not feel loved by his father, and he is far from happy. In fact, verse 28 says that he's angry. He's angry with his father, angry with his brother, angry about the way life has turned out and many people choose the elder brother life many of us wrongly believe that if we just try to do the right thing and be the right kind of person then we will experience love that we will be fulfilled and that we will find happiness Does this mean that we shouldn't strive to live a moral and upright life? I mean, on the surface, those of you with children, I have my own. If you were going to pick a a trajectory for your children, you would pick the trajectory of the older son. Does living a moral, upright, obedient life, is that a bad thing? And the answer is absolutely not. But when, and this is so important, when we begin to believe that God's love and favor are owed us or that we can earn them because of our obedience, because of our compliance, because of our goodness, we end up just as far from the father as the younger brother. So on the surface, the brothers could not be more different. Uh, While the younger brother left home, the older brother stayed home. While the younger brother denied his father, the, the elder brother obeyed his father. But really, their lives are just opposite sides of the same coin. And so listen to what Tim Keller again in his book says. Elder brothers obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself in order to resemble him, love him, know him, and delight in him. And so, religious and moral people can be avoiding Jesus as Savior and Lord just as much as younger brothers. Here, then, is Jesus' radical redefinition of sin. Jesus shows us that an obedient, moral man can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most immoral person. One goes off, spends his inheritance uh, in what one author says would be a modern-day version of Vegas, living in debauchery, looking for loves in the arms of prostitutes. One stays home under the roof of his father, but neither one of them have intimacy, love, or experienced the love of their father. And so if we we put ourselves in the shoes of the father, we can almost hear him saying to his older son, hey, don't be like your younger brother. If If you put yourselves in the shoes of the father for a moment, you can hear him saying, don't be like your younger brother but if we stay in the father's shoes long enough we can also hear him saying to his younger son don't be like your older brother you see both brothers have wandered far away from the loving embrace of their father one did it in a far off country and one did it under the same roof and so this this encouragement or admonition goes both ways don't be like your brother Here's a second thought to consider. Believe in the unconditional love of your father. So somewhere along the way, both brothers stopped believing in the unconditional love of their father. They stopped believing in his love for them and they in turn stopped loving him. So when the younger son says to his father, give me the share of property that is coming to me, he was quite literally saying, Father, I don't love you for you. I just love what you have. In fact, I wish, I wish you were dead. But by asking for what would come to him while his father was still living, he's, he's saying, Father, you don't mean anything to me. I just, want, I just want your stuff. It would be better for me if you were dead, so can we, can we just get along with things? And then he took his he took his inheritance, which is actually the tangible expression of his father's love. And he tried to buy love from the arms of prostitutes. He so desperately wanted to be loved and happy, but he couldn't see and he stopped believing in the love that was already his. That his father did love him. And even after he came to himself, it's, it's not full and complete repentance. Even after he came to himself, he didn't fully understand and believe in the unconditional love of his father. In verse 19, he said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. What son, what son, who truly believes that he is loved as a son, would ever think that his father would treat him as a hired servant? The answer is a son who doesn't believe or understand that he is truly loved. The son stopped believing. Could no longer see that he was loved by his father. When we adjust our viewing angle, we see a very similar image in the older son that he also stopped believing in the unconditional love of his father. When he said in verse 29, look, these many years I have served you slaved away. I've never disobeyed your command. You know, I've read this parable countless times, and one of the things I find interesting is the father doesn't correct him. It's presupposed that that was true, that he had been truly faithful, truly compliant, truly obedient. He says, look, these many years I've slaved away for you. I never disobeyed your command, but you given this this." younger brother of mine, the fattened calf, you wouldn't even give me a young goat that I could throw a weekend party with my friends. He's quite literally saying to his father, if anyone should be loved, it should be me. I've done everything imaginable to earn your love, and yet it's clear you don't love me. If you did, you you would just give me a small portion of what you gave him. Neither brother can see or believe in the love of the father. And so here's the connection point between these two brothers. Both stopped believing that they already possessed their father's love. And both believed the way to earn their father's love was by performance. What does the younger son say? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. In other words, I will begin living the way my older brother has always lived. I will slave away for you. I will do if I can just have your love. And the older brother says, I've never gone away. All these many years I've served you. Yet it's clear you don't love me. But friends, true love doesn't work that way. If you're a parent, you know that. True love doesn't work that way. The father never wavered in his love for his sons. Never wavered. That's clear, by the way, that he ran out to meet his younger son. Even before the the younger son begins this prepared speech, even before the words are off his lips, the father runs to meet him same is true with the older son he leaves the party he leaves the festivities and goes out to plead with his younger son so despite their respective sins the father's love remains constant for both of his sons i told you this before but every night um, i pray with my my little daughter cooper and Um, if I forget or if I get busy she she doesn't let me forget Um, she she will not let me forget and I really wish I'd started that habit with my um, boys when they were little I didn't start that practice and it didn't become a habit so I'm trying to make up for lost time now but um, but when I pray with Cooper uh, I say almost the same words every single night I I bet she could probably repeat it for you and so I'll I'll lean in near to her and I'll say dear father Thank you for Cooper Grace. Thank you for making her, and thank you for giving her to us. I pray that she would grow up happy and healthy. Lord, I pray that she would grow up to continually love you. And Father, I pray that she would grow up remembering always how much we love her, but more importantly, how much you love her. See, I want Cooper, and I want all my kids, to grow up to love God. But I believe the only way they will grow to love God is when they remember and believe how much God as their father loves them. And so I pray specifically, Father, always help her to remember how much you love her. And friends, it's, it's one thing to know in your head that God loves you. I mean, if, if, if you're even raised a, around the church, from childhood we hear this and we can sing this, Jesus loves me this I No, for the Bible tells me so. It's one thing to know in your head, but it's another thing to believe in your heart that God the Father truly loves you. And our heart often betrays our head, and we stop believing that God the Father truly loves us. The Son, although it was so so obvious and clear, the Father loved him. Couldn't see it. Stopped believing it. Same was true for the older son. So, so we must believe in the unconditional love of the father. And here's the third thought I want you to consider. we need to practice faith and repentance daily. So these are the first two steps of the gospel dance. Faith and repentance. The father in this parable never wavered in his love. But but not until the end of the parable do do the sons know his love in an experiential way. Friends, our Heavenly Father never wavers in his love for us. He never wavers. He, he, He loves rebellious younger brothers and he loves religious older brothers. But we will not experience that love unless we move towards him in faith and repentance. And and so I want to be clear about this. There isn't anything that we can do, anything that we can do, to earn God's love. Coming back to him groveling or obediently serving him, neither earn his love. And yet, the way that we experience his love is by actively daily practicing faith and repentance. So repentance, it's, it's turning, one, uh, turning from one thing and turning to another, or as we considered last Ash Wednesday, uh, turning loose of one thing and instead embracing another. And so when I was younger, I dreaded the idea of repentance. Repentance was sort of a dirty word in my mind. I, I thought that I thought that repentance was something only people in biker gangs had to do. I didn't want to be that. Or people like this younger brother who goes off that, that these were the kind of people who had to repent, and I didn't want to be associated with them. But then when I was in college and really just reading uh, the works of, of Martin Luther and particularly starting with the the 95 thesis when he opens that our Lord and Master Jesus Christ when he has said repent he has willed the whole of life to be one of repentance all of life so when I was in college I discovered that that repentance is not a bad thing to be dreaded but it's a, it's, it's a good practice to be embraced it's a, it's a gift of God's grace and it's for guys like me and see that's that's the heartbreaking part of this parable the younger son who, who has squandered um, the father's inheritance, his inheritance on reckless living, and is alone, estranged, he sees his need for repentance. The older brother never does, at least in the parable. That repentance is a gift of God's grace, not just for younger brother types, but for older brother types. And and um, Jason and I have both been in ministry for a couple of decades, and we've sort of never worked in the real world. We've always been around God's people, and and uh, and this is sort of born out of experience that most of the people um, that fill the pews are the older brother. There's a handful of you have had the younger brother experience, but most of us are older brothers. And it's through repentance that we do the gospel dance, that we turn loose of one thing and embrace another. The great shocker in this parable, right? what really pulls the rug out from under the scribes and Pharisees is not how the father received the younger brother back. Have you ever been watching a movie? And I think I mentioned one a few weeks ago when I was preaching, um, a heist movie, uh, um, a bank robbery movie that Kimbo and I saw several weeks ago, and um, just when we thought uh, the story, uh, you know, had, had reached a conclusion, the we, we knew who did it, sort of the who done it moment. The rug was pulled out from underneath this, and there was a twist. A very similar thing happens in this parable. Um, th- the rug begins to get tugged when the when the father receives back the younger brother in this lavish display of affection and he kills the fattened calf and he puts a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet and there's this shocking moment but that's not uh, that's not where the real shocker comes the shocker comes when the parable ends with the older brother estranged and hungry when the older brother is on the outside looking in this is where Jesus shatters our categories and challenges us all of us When I say the way that we experience God's love is through the daily practice of faith and repentance, I'm not simply talking to younger brothers. I'm talking to all of us, especially those of you like me, older brother types, who believe that perhaps we have merited God's love by our clean living. Now, I know that we would never say that, but it's in our practice, it's subterranean that God's love and favor are owed us because of our performance, because of our clean living, because we haven't gone the way of the younger brother. And this is really tested when God doesn't give you what you desire. So one of my heroes in ministry is a man um, named Ray uh, he's a He's a pastor of a PCA church in uh, southwest Florida, and he started the church, he planted Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church about 30 years ago, and over 30 years has seen the church grow and, um, and, and really flourish. And a buddy of his in ministry, I love this story, a buddy of his in ministry had been uh, at his church, this is probably two decades ago, about 10 years and uh, the church threw him a big party and gave he and his wife a trip to Jerusalem and the Holy Land. And they gave him like a, a little paid sabbatical. And it was sort of this, uh, this great moment. And when, when his friend's telling Ray about this, Ray's just seething. He said, I've been at my church 20 years. They didn't even give me a Christmas bonus. And he's telling the story. He says, oh, crap, I'm I'm the older brother. I'm the older brother. He said, as soon as the, the, lips, uh, the words passed his mouth, he said, oh, oh this is me. That we think that, that by our performance and clean living and faithfulness and obedience that, that God's love and favor are owed us, and we would never say that, but, but where the rubber meets the road is when we don't get what we think we deserve. And so repentance, moving to God in faith and repentance, these are the dance uh, the dance moves of the of the gospel, and so let me just close with this. It's a quote from an English Puritan named Thomas Watson. He wrote a little book called The Doctrine of Repentance, and so listen to what he says. Some people, being very moral, have nothing to do with the business of repentance. They are so good that they scorn God's offer of love and mercy. Indeed, these are often in the worst condition, their morality undoes them. Yet morality shoots short of heaven. A moral man is but old, man, old Adam dressed in fine clothes. Though the life is moralized, the lust is unmortified. The heart may be full of pride and atheism. I am not saying repent that you are moral, but that you are no more than moral. If morality were sufficient to salvation, Christ need not have died. The moral man has a fair lamp, but it lacks the oil of loving grace. And so if you find yourself as a younger brother thinking that you're going to find love, fulfillment, happiness, apart from the welcome embrace of God the Father, believe, repent, and run to him. But if if you're like me, and if you have more of the older brother in you, and you think because you've been faithful, served him, lived a relatively clean life, moral, obedient, upright, that you somehow are owed and have earned the Father's love, your lamp lacks the oil of loving grace. It's grace for the outsider and grace for the insider so when we stop looking for love and happiness in rebellion or self-righteousness, but believe that God already loves us, that his love is already given to us, we can move to him in faith and repentance, and we do the gospel dance. And listen, when we get those steps right, it's not complex. There are plenty of dances that are complex. The two-step is not. When you get those steps right, almost everything else falls into place. And so let's pray for receptive hearts. Father, thank you for this wonderful word that you saw fit to give us in your holy word. Because it has a way of capturing everyone. Um, scribes, Pharisees, tax collectors and sinners. Th- those like my, um, my uh, church friend who, um, who never had any need for God who went off and lived a life of debauchery and ended up facing the consequences of his sin. Lord, if, if there are those, and I'm particularly thinking of, of, of young people um, who, who believe that, that uh, they'll just do their time here, uh, you know, bide their time while their parents make them attend church, but when they go off to college or um, grad school or whatever, that, that they uh, really can live their life to the fullest. They can live their life apart from you that you, by your Spirit, would dissuade them of that sort of foolish, wicked thinking even now. They will not find what their heart so desires apart from you. But I pray for the many, like myself, who've never really wandered too far, at least at least not outwardly. Uh, Lord, we've, we've tried to be faithful. We've served you. And yet we're angry. We're angry. Because you show grace to those that you shouldn't. You don't give us what we think we deserve. Father, for those uh, who are like me, would would you dissuade us of that wicked, sinful thinking that your love is ours simply because you are loving, not because of our merit. And that we would see our need for repentance and faith. That we, that we would not repent because we are moral, but we're just no more than moral. That you would convict us by your spirit and draw us to you in faith and repentance, and we would not find ourselves like the older brother in this parable on the outside looking in, but that we would look forward to the feast of the Father. And Lord, as we start this year off right, 2019, help us to do that, to start it off right, to start off on the right foot, Um, realizing that the Christian life uh, is really simple. Faith and repentance in response to love. Faith and repentance in response to love. Do that work within us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.